Let's get straight to the point. You want to grow your portfolio to deal with the rising cost of inflation to pay off your debt or your mortgage, pretty much anything standing in the way of you and financial freedom, right? Well, with Yahoo Finance, you can get access to the news, data, and tools that you need in order to help you reach that financial freedom. And when it comes to your financial future, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, you've invested all that you can. And now you need to take those investments to the next level by using what every financial great uses. Yahoo Finance. For more than 25 years, Yahoo Finance has been the brand behind every great investor. They're the number one finance destination, producing a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination. That's yahoofinance.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Shift show. The U.S. stock market continues to be extremely volatile. And as I said many times on this podcast, I think the volatility coming after a long period of a record lack of volatility is a pretty good sign that the trend has changed. And that means the uptrend. And so there's a good chance that the bull market is now a bear market, although few people seem to realize that. We're still relatively close to the highs. In fact, the Nasdaq uh, shrugged off the morning weakness and managed to gain for the fourth day in a row. You know, I'm actually hearing a lot of people saying how, you know, this tariffs or a trade war could benefit uh, U.S. companies, you know, give them an edge uh, over the multinationals. All this is, you know, wishful thinking, maybe trying to argue that there's some seats on the Titanic that are going to do better than others. Believe me, uh, if uh, the economy tanks and if the uh, tariffs or a trade war simply weigh it down even faster, uh, there's not going to be a place to hide in U.S. stocks. I mean, even if you could find some stocks where you'll lose less than other stocks, it's a very, very weak argument uh, to get on board. But meanwhile, you know, the, the volatility started last night with the announcement of the resignation of Gary Cohn, who was the chief economic advisor uh, to the president. And one of the reasons that his resignation spooked the market, the Dow futures initially tumbled about 400 points, was that he is opposed to the tariffs, at least vocally, so he would be against uh, this type of agenda. And so the fact that he is leaving would lead people to believe that uh, he's lost that argument internally at the White House, and so he's leaving uh, because the president is pursuing a path uh, to which he has objected. And so for people who have been hoping that maybe Cohen will rein in the president and that you know he's just uh, you know talking and it's a lot of bark but not a lot of bite, the fact that Cohen is leaving uh, got people to think, hey, you know maybe it is gonna gonna be bite. And so that's why the market sold off. Now, by the time we opened up, uh, the futures had moved off their lows. 
Uh, and for most of the day, the Dow traded between down maybe 100 and down a little over 300. But we had a rally near the end of the day. The Dow only closed down about 82. And as I said earlier, the Nasdaq finished positive again for the fourth day. Part of the news was that uh, Trump is considering exempting uh, Mexico and Canada from the tariffs. And that's supposedly good news, I guess, maybe because it lessens the probability that those countries will retaliate. But of course, a large portion of the deficits that he's concerned about in steel and aluminum, that's where the deficits are originating from. Uh, but the markets rallied on that. Obviously, the Canadian dollar, the Mexican peso rallied on that. You know, in fact, if these rumors are true, and you never know, I mean, the president can change his mind from tweet to tweet. But if, in fact, the tariffs are enacted and Mexico and Canada are exempted, that is great news for Mexico and Canada. I mean, they're going to benefit from these tariffs. The U.S. economy will not, but the Mexican and Canadian economies will, because they will be able to sell more steel and aluminum to American consumers at even higher prices. Uh, and so they're going to benefit just like domestic steel companies will benefit, except the rest of Canada won't suffer the way America will from all the negative consequences of the tariffs in general, because Canadian consumers will, you know, will still be able to buy uh, steel or aluminum from wherever they want, and manufacturers in, in, in Canada uh, may be able to enjoy lower prices uh, than manufacturers in the United States, because manufacturers in Canada can shop the entire world uh, for steel and aluminum, whereas American uh, manufacturers will be limited to North America and so there'll be less competition, and so there'll be higher prices. So this is more good news for Mexico and Canada than it would be for the United States, although I, I guess not uh, subjecting Americans to tariffs if they purchase uh, things from Mexico and Canada is better than subjecting them to those tariffs. So it would be less of a bad thing to the extent that the president does uh, you know, authorize these exemptions. But you know, he's also talking about broader-based tariffs, uh, particularly aimed at China, who could be particularly annoyed if uh, Mexico and Canada are exempted from these tariffs, and that makes it look like it really is more aimed at China. If, you know, when we were putting everybody in the same bucket, it was like, well, you know, it's not just anti-China, we're just putting this in across the board. But if we pick and choose who the tariffs apply to, obviously we're going to piss off the people who we choose not to exempt. Right. So maybe we endear ourselves a little bit more uh, to China and Mexico, but we simply create more animosity between the United States and China. And I know, you know, the president thinks we hold all the cards in the Chinese relationship, but they're holding all of our bonds and they are holding a lot of dollars and they are supplying Americans with a lot of products that they need at prices that are much lower than what they would pay absent the Chinese uh, trade deficits and their willingness to finance them. You know, interestingly, I thought when I heard the news about Cohen resigning as the chief economic advisor, and of course, Trump is immediately saying, oh, we're going to get somebody great. I'm going to appoint another uh, economic advisor who's going to give me great advice. I mean, he wants a yes man, right? He doesn't want an economic advisor that's going <laughs> to give him advice. He wants somebody that's going to rubber stamp his agenda. But, you know, he has an entire council of economic advisors supposedly giving him advice. And people might think that this was always the case, that presidents were always getting the benefit 
of you know, a staff of economic advisors. That's not true. We didn't even have a council of economic advisors until 1946. The Second World War was over, and we created the economic advisors. I mean, maybe because the government had so much money because of the victory tax that they never repealed, they figured they'd blow some of it on a bunch of economists. But I think it's a complete waste. I mean, America made it to 1946 without any economic advisors. Well, and we had a much stronger economy, right? We went through the Industrial Revolution. We absorbed, you know, tens of millions of immigrants, right, coming from all over the world. We had a massive expansion. We had a transformation from an agrarian to an industrial economy without any economic advice, right? The president didn't talk to economists. There was no economists on the federal payroll. I mean, there was a secretary of the treasury. I mean, he had that, but he wasn't there to give me economic advice. He was there to, you know, kind of deal with the treasury, the budget, right? Taxes, revenue, stuff like that. I mean, the economy ran itself. I mean, that was the whole idea. We don't want the government micromanaging the economy. So why do they need economists? What's the point, right? We're not, this is not central planning. This isn't the Soviet Union, right? We want a free market. We don't want the government trying to figure out what the economy is going to do and then try to base policy on what they think is going to happen in the economy or what they think will help the economy. We want the government to be completely out of the economy. That's why there's no provision in the Constitution for any kind of economists. That's why it took so long before we were dumb enough to even hire any of these clowns. Now, I have no idea how many hundreds or thousands of people who have e economists in their title work for the government. Right, not just for the president and his council of economic advisors, but we have all these agencies and departments that have all kinds of economists doing what? Doing absolutely nothing. We became the world's wealthiest creditor nation with no economists, zero economists. Now we've got all these economists and it's a disaster. I mean, haven't any of these economists uh, noticed, you know, what a mess the U.S. economy is, how massively the U.S. economy has uh, imploded, how we've gone from the biggest creditor to the biggest debtor. I mean, Trump wants to point to all these trade deficits, which are symptomatic of the problem. They're not the disease, they're the symptom, which is why tariffs, which are aimed at the symptom, are not going to cure the disease. But we developed all these deficits with all these economists giving us advice. I mean, didn't any of them notice these massive deficits and have any problem with it? Look, um, you've got this guy Cohen you know, he's resigning because of the tariffs. What about the budget deal? What about the tax cuts that are unfunded? What about raising government spending while you're reducing your tax revenue? Why not resign over that? That is reckless, irresponsible policy. So it's just over, over the tariffs. But all these economists have allowed the U.S. economy to implode. They haven't noticed all the warning signs as we have hollowed out our industry and have loaded the economy with debt right? And consumption. And we've had this bloated government. In fact, that's really what the job of all these economists are. They are yes men. They are basically ministers of propaganda. They're not there to help the economy. They're there to justify government policy by trying to pretend that this is about helping the economy or trying to pretend that some new program or some new regulation is going to make the economy better. This is all cover. This is all a smokescreen for government to get bigger and bigger and to reach into your pocket to buy votes to sustain their own uh, fiefdom within the government, to maintain their power base and to keep government getting bigger 
they hire these economists to justify what they want to do. But personally, I think that everybody who works for the federal government that has the word economist in their title should just be fired. We don't need them. It is a waste of money. None of these guys really understand economics anyway. They all went to some liberal school and they, they learned all this Keynesian nonsense. They're doing more harm than good, right? So just get rid of them. So the fact that uh, this guy has resigned, Cohen has resigned, great. We don't need to repoint, appoint somebody to replace him. We should just basically ask for all the other resignations or that just ask for the resignations. Let's just, let's just fire them. Hey, now speaking about trade, you know, we got some trade numbers that came out today, another record high. I mean, this is like a broken record, right? Every month we set a new record high in our trade deficit. So in January, we beat the record trade deficit that we set in February, which was a record. And we just revised February's number higher. And then we beat that too. Now, when I'm talking about a record, it's not a record total because it's only the, the, the biggest trade deficit in nine years. The record is if you don't count energy. Just take out energy and focus on everything else. It's a record. Our biggest trade deficits were still when oil was close to $150 a barrel. Um, and we didn't produce as much oil as we're producing now. But if you look at the core, we've never had trade deficits this big. So the January number, which was a record at the time, uh, which was originally reported as $53.1 billion, is now revised up to $53.9 billion. And the January number which was estimated to surge to 55.1 billion, actually swelled all the way to 56.6 billion for a new record. And it was this weak number that I think got the Atlanta Fed to downwardly revise their estimate again for Q1 GDP, which by the way, last week, you never went down to 2.6. They took it all the way back up to 3.5 on what I have no idea. Well, today they went back down and now they're back down to 2.8. Uh, but had they not jumped it all the way back up to 3.5, who knows how much lower they'd be. But I, I don't know, you know where they got that big jump. But now they're coming back down to earth. But 2.8 is still a little bit above the 2.6. But I think that they're going to continue to notch it down. Uh, we keep getting more bad news. We got weak numbers yesterday on factory orders uh, down again or down 1.4%, a little bit more than the 1.3%. But I think it's the you know, weakest in six months on factory orders. I think that's going to continue uh, to go down. We got the numbers also today on productivity and costs. Productivity in the fourth quarter, they did revise it up slightly from minus 0.1 to flat. But no growth in productivity is very problematic. Unit, unit labor costs were up 2.5%, uh, which is one of the reasons that productivity is down. But year over year, labor costs are actually up by their slowest pace since 2010. And, you know, I keep hearing the president, you know, talking about how, how labor, how wages are surging, but there really isn't any evidence that that's happening. But that is the narrative. You know, I was watching today on CNBC, Anthony Scaramucci came on. Remember him? Uh, he was from Skybridge. Uh, he runs the SALT conference that I've spoken at a few times. And I actually like Anthony. He's, I think he's a nice guy. I mean, I consider him, you know, sort of a friend. I mean, it's not like we pal around. Uh, but but we have a friendly relationship with one another. And but he was on television um, today, basically shilling for the president, talking about, you know, how great the economy is under the president, how much better it was under Trump. And he's talking about how the economy has been growing at three percent. And he said Obama only had one quarter of three percent GDP growth 
during his entire eight years. And I'm like, what, what, you know, I mean, he's, people just talk. I sent him a text and I'm like, Anthony, he had five quarters of more than 3% just in his second term. And he had two, three of them that were over 4% and one of them that was over 5%. So the, the economy is not growing much faster under Trump than it was under Obama. Obama's average for his second four years, 2.2. Trump GDP year one, 2.3. It's basically the same thing. It's a rounding error. And we'll see what happens in 2018. I think the economy is in a lot of trouble in 2018. But all this talk about how great everything is and what a great job the president has already done, this is counterproductive. He hasn't done a great job. Has he cut some regulations? Yes, but not nearly enough. I mean, we still have way more regulations than we had a few years ago, even though he's cut back some of them. I mean, we barely made a dent. In, in the regulations that were piled on under Obama. And remember, Bush piled them on too. I mean, so we barely scratched the surface in rolling back regulations. Yes, he cut taxes, but big deal. He increased government spending at the same time. So the tax cuts are a fraud, right? I've said this many times. It's not tax cuts that stimulate the economy. It's shrinking the government. Yes, part of the problem with big government is that you've got to pay for it. And you have to pay for it with taxes, which hurt the economy, which hurt economic growth. So if you shrink government, then you can cut taxes and you get more economic growth. But if you just cut taxes and don't shrink government or worse, you do what the Republicans and Trump did. You increase government spending while you're cutting taxes. Then the deficits blow out of control. And the most expensive way to pay for government and the most economically damaging way to pay for government is by borrowing the money instead of taxing it. And ultimately, it ends up printing the money because you can't borrow it all. So you end up substituting taxation for inflation. And this is worse. And ultimately, all of the borrowed money needs to be repaid with interest. So it's just like putting government on a credit card. And I'm not going to give Trump credit for that. That's not a good thing. You know, speaking about credit, we did get the consumer credit numbers that came out today. And we had a much smaller increase in the amount of debt that consumers took on. Uh, in fact, they revised higher the, the splurge in December, right? Initially, they said they took on $18.4 billion, and it's now we know they took on $19.2 billion. But a huge drop in January. They were supposed to borrow $17.4, and they only borrowed $13.9. Now, that's still more borrowing, right? So you're still talking about a drowning man you know, going further, you know, under the water, right? But the key is that the U.S. consumer who's tapped out is going deeper into debt at a slower pace. Now, I guess that is a good thing, right? But the fact that we're still going even deeper into debt is a problem in the long run. It's like, you know, the first rule of holes is that when you're in one, stop digging. So the U.S. consumer is already digging his hole deeper by borrowing even more money. But again, I think a lot of people think, who cares how much debt I have now? I can't pay it back anyway, so I might as well go out with a bang, right? If I'm going to go bankrupt eventually, I might as well go bankrupt owing even more money. So you have that you know, moral hazard out there. But the fact that consumers are slowing down their borrowing, if you're relying on consumer spending for GDP growth, if you're relying on consumer spending for corporate earning growth, you ain't going to get it. Because the consumer can't spend what he can't borrow because we know they're not earning it. Earnings are not there. We know that consumers have no savings to tap into because savings are at a 10-year low. So the only way they're going to buy more is if they can borrow more. Well, 
Obviously, if the rate of borrowing is going down, uh, then that is going to bode ill for future uh, short-term GDP, which everybody is counting on to pad corporate earnings and to diminish uh, the deficits that are being produced by the tax cuts and the higher government spending. Remember, they're counting on extra growth to bail them out. Well, if the consumer can't borrow to spend, you're not going to get the extra spending that is going to, you know, that powers 70 percent of the GDP. Now, we also got some stronger than expected jobs news out of the ADP. And this is the, the first look. We get the, the official non-farm payroll on Friday by the government. But this is the private sector payroll numbers. They were looking for 205,000 new jobs. We got 235,000, so a 30,000 uh, beat. And they also revised last month's 234 to 244, so 40,000 beat over the two months. And so that was looked at as stronger economic data. It initially did not weigh down the bond market because I think the bond market was being supported by the weakness in the stock market. But yields ended up higher on the day as the stocks recovered their losses. Uh, yield on the 30-year only up slightly, just above 3.15, and the 10-year hanging out at 2.883. But if you look at these charts, to me, I mean, we are just basing for another explosive move up in yield and down in bond prices. And, you know, for some reason, a lot of the tariff talk is getting people nervous, and so that's uh, producing a bit of a, a buy, a bid in the bond market. But the bond market ain't rallying. It's just not collapsing. But I think ultimately what's happening is bearish for bonds. And bonds were in a downtrend anyway, right? But the growth is slowing. Uh, inflation is picking up. The deficits are exploding. I mean, this bigger than expected trade deficit again today does nothing. The dollar didn't go down today. It was actually up slightly. Gold was down about nine bucks. Now, I think it was up 14 or 15 bucks yesterday. Uh, but, I mean, gold is not reacting the way it should. The dollar is not reacting the way it should to these huge trade deficits. In fact, nothing is really acting the way it should. The stock market is very resilient in the face of all this bad news. I mean, to me, it just shows how few people out there understand just how bad this news is, understand the threat. Now, look, maybe Trump is just making a bunch of noise. Maybe He's creating a, a negative situation, right? And then he won't do anything. And then maybe the markets will rally, right? If you can scare the markets and get them all nervous about these tariffs and then not even impose them, all of a sudden it's like, oh, this is great news, right? Because we didn't get this bad stuff that we thought we were going to get. And now you can manufacture some good news that the market can rally on. Like I, It's like I threatened to hurt you, but then I decided not to do it. And so now you can, you can enjoy the fact that you're not going to get the pain that I was potentially going to inflict on you. I mean, maybe that's part of the strategy. I don't know. I mean, in fact, that's what Scaramucci was kind of talking about, like, well, the president doesn't really mean that he's going to put these tariffs. He's just using it as a bargaining chip to get better deals. But again, better deals is not what we need. That's bad deals are not why we don't have deficits. Look, you can look at a lot of countries that have trade surpluses with countries with which we have deficits. I mean, what's the reason for that? It's not that, you know, they've got much better deals than we do. The problem is we're not saving. We're not investing in plant and equipment. We're not training the workers. We don't have the money to do that because we're blowing it all on consumption. You know, we, we got interest rates so low that nobody is saving, you know, and we have too much regulation. We have too many taxes. I mean, we got all sorts of ways that we are undermining our American businesses, which are the reason that we are running these trade deficits. And those are the things that we need to focus on 
not trying to focus on the symptom and trying to hide the symptom with some kind of tariff. I mean, there's still a lot of people out there that are actually thinking that somehow there's going to be some success in this strategy, right? That there's some kind of method to the madness when, in fact, it, it, it's all madness because none of it is going to work and none of it addresses any of the underlying economic problems that have produced this trade deficit. Now, we'll see what happens. You know, we get some more economic data tomorrow, and then we get the big number on Friday, the non-farm payroll number. You know, I have been waiting for these numbers to really weaken. Thus far, that hasn't happened. It's only a question of time uh, before the jobs numbers really start to turn around. Um, how much more time is anybody's guess? But I would imagine that sometime before the, um, the elections uh, in September, we're going to see a turn. I mean, everything else seems to be turning. And, you know, higher uh, consumer prices, higher interest rates. Look at what's happening in the housing market. Look at all the signs of economic weakness. Eventually, it's got to show up in the employment numbers. They are usually a lagging indicator, right? So usually employment could roll over uh, later than a lot of the other data, which has already rolled over. Nobody wants to acknowledge it. Nobody wants to accept it. Everybody wants to run with that false narrative of how horrible things were under Obama and how great things are now under Trump. And I agree with half of that. Things were horrible under Obama. It's just that they're just as horrible now, if not worse. The problems we had under Obama are actually bigger than now than they were then. It's just that we're not focusing on it because we got some tax cuts. And now we have all this excitement, all this misplaced optimism that things are going to get better. But what people don't understand is they're going to get worse, which is you know, why I, when I see guys like Scaramucci talking about how, how, how great the president's plans are and how wonderful everything is, and I just, I, it makes me cringe because I know how this is going to blow up uh, in the face of all Republicans and anybody who advocates for less government, lower taxes, less regulation, because they are promising so much and will deliver so little. And again, these guys, they think all you have to do is cut taxes and everything is going to be great. No, it's not. But when, if you say that, then you, you, you basically dilute the entire message. The message of tax cuts is we need smaller government. See, if you, if you don't do that, right, you have to let people know that it's a trade-off. You can't just have tax cuts for free. What the Republicans have to sell is less government. The reward for less government is the tax cuts. See, if they do that, it will work. But if they just say, let's cut taxes, and, there's, and then bad things happen, then you undermine the case for tax cuts. We still want lower taxes. We just need less government so we can have them. Right? We need to make government cheaper so that we don't have to spend all this money paying for it. That has to be the Republican message. Unfortunately, it's not. And so they are going to tarnish all of the benefits that you can have from tax cuts if they go hand in hand with less government. And they're going to use the economic disaster, the left is, uh, to blame everything on the tax cuts. And therefore, the solution is higher taxes. Right? Tax cuts cause the problem. So higher taxes will solve the problem. Right? We need to raise taxes on the rich. We need to raise taxes on corporations. Oh, and by the way, we're going to keep making government even bigger. So we are setting ourselves up for a big disaster. Hey, talking about disasters, I don't want to finish up this podcast without talking a little bit about Bitcoin. Uh, Bitcoin has also seen some increased volatility recently. In fact, earlier this today, it was back below 10,000. You know, Bitcoin had ri risen almost up to 12,000. I don't think it quite got there. 
I did see it in the high 11,000s. Maybe it got to 12,000 when I wasn't looking. I don't know. But earlier today, it got below 9,500. So another pretty big drop. I mean, as I'm speaking, we've recovered the 10,000 milestone. But I still think technically uh, the market's going lower. I mean, forget about my long-term fundamental outlook, which is way lower. Just in the short run, the technicals still look very weak. And remember, uh, the bottom uh, was about 6,000. I think we need to test that. Even if Bitcoin is going higher, even if it's going to go back to 20,000, I think it needs to go back to 6,000 first. So we'll see. But of course, if it gets down to 6,000, there's no guarantee it's going to have a double bottom. It could just go through that low like a hot knife through butter. Then where's the next support? 5,000, 4,000, 2,000, 1,000? I don't know. But there is a, a lot of risk there in this market. I mean, I, I look at the cryptos as risk assets, just like any other risk asset. I don't look at it like a like a safe haven asset like gold, even though they want to describe it as digital gold. It has nothing in common with, with gold. And if you look at the way gold has been trading, I mean, gold has not been very volatile. I mean, even if you see today down nine bucks, up 14 the other day, those are big moves for gold, but those are tiny moves. They're not even 1% moves, really. Uh, or yesterday's move was just over 1%. But Bitcoin, you know, moves 1% an hour. I mean, you're, it, it, you know, it was down over 10% intraday when it was down near the lows. So these are, this is big volatility. And again, a lot of the Bitcoin proponents keep saying that the volatility is going to go away. When? I mean, it's been, you know, I mean, they, they think, well, maybe if the price gets high enough, but the price is certainly a lot higher now than it was four or five years ago. Yet it's certainly just as volatile with these massive swings. There's certainly no stability here. Anybody that is betting on stability is betting on the come. They're betting on something where there's absolutely no proof that it's actually going to happen because there's no proof that it is happening. So it's all wishful thinking uh, at best. And of course, for some people, it's just not wishful thinking. It's just stuff that they're saying because they're trying to uh, justify the mania or they're trying to get other people to buy whatever. But we'll see what happens uh, in, in, in the crypto market, in the stock market. I mean, there's a lot of uh, potential breakdowns, a lot of air coming out of a lot of bubbles. The mother of all bubbles, of course, being in the U.S. bond market and the U.S. dollar. And remember, all U.S. bonds are, are dollars, right? They're dollars that, that pay interest, right? They're dollars with a coupon. But you can't even spend them now because you can't really spend your treasury until you sell it. So if you've got a 30-year treasury, if you want to convert that into liquidity, you've got to sell it. And if interest rates go up, even though let's say you have a treasury that's going to pay you $1,000 in 30 years, if you had to sell it right now and rates spiked up, you might only get $500 for it, not the full thousand, right? Bonds could go to a, a huge discount if interest rates go up. Now, if you have a short-term bond, if you have like a 90-day bill, well, that's almost exactly like cash, right? Because it's going to, you can get your money in 90 days, and even if you have to sell it before maturity, I mean, you're not going to take much of a haircut uh, because the person who buys it from you only has to wait a short period of time to get all the money back. So that's almost exactly like 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 a dollar. So the dollar bubble and the bond bubble are pretty much one and the same. They're all part of, of the overvalued dollar and the massive amount of money we were able to borrow to finance all these trade deficits. That's what Trump doesn't seem to understand when he keeps talking about how we're losing on trade and how all we have to do with a country that we have a trade deficit is stop trading and we win. We don't win. We lose. Our trading partners are losing now. We do them a favor by not borrowing more of their money 
to take some of their products that they could have used themselves and giving them IOUs that are no good, bum checks that if they ever tried to cash them, they would bounce, right? I mean, if you're buying stuff from a store, right, and you've conned the store to accepting your checks, even though you've got no money in your checking account, and you keep shopping at that store and you keep giving them a check, and the guy just, you know, sets it in a drawer somewhere and just assumes you're good for it and never bothers to try to take him to the bank. I mean, who's, who's the winner and who's the loser? Who's the sucker, right? And who is going to lose if you can't go to that store anymore, right? Not the store owner, because he's going to win, because he's going to stop losing his merchandise in exchange for a bunch of checks that would bounce if he ever tries to cash them. You're the loser because now you can't you don't know another store that's dumb enough to take your worthless checks. Right. If you want to get more merchandise, you might actually have to go out and get a job and pay for it. That is the rude awakening that all this saber rattling on trade. Right? And of course, long term. Yeah. Trump is right in that the sooner we stop running these deficits, the better. Right. We've got to start uh, producing again because eventually foreigners are going to cut us off anyway. It's only a matter of time. And to the extent that we can accelerate the day of reckoning, it's actually a good thing in that we can start the healing process sooner. But what Trump doesn't understand is how painful it's going to be in the short run, right? Because now the economy implodes. Our standard of living implodes. We have to deal with reality. We just can't keep borrowing to live beyond our means. The, the ride on the global gravy train comes to an end. And now we've got to start building back a viable economy. And the American electorate, the voters, the people on welfare and living off of the government, nobody is prepared for that reality.